In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor, currently in Wuppertal, Germany. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor, currently in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. EU-UK relations are back on crisis mode as the UK publishes the bill that would effectively demolish the Northern Ireland Protocol. Boris Johnson said it's not a big deal. The Taoiseach Michal Martin says it's a new historic law in relations and the European Commission resumes legal action against the UK. We'll assess what's in the bill, how we got here and whether a trade war is now inevitable. We'll also have a flavour of how the principal players reacted from Dublin to London to Belfast. But first, Tony V. Gates in Wuppertal. It's for Scheinlich a lot better there than it is in terms of mood music than it has been in Brussels over here in Dublin. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm, I'm here actually at a symposium on Irish border narratives, which was organised about six months ago when the, I can tell you the organisers couldn't believe their luck when it fell on the week that's in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Not quite schadenfreude, so all, but something something, yeah, something I mean, ähnliches. Yeah, if I knew the German for schadenfreude, I, I would have uh, checked that out. <laughs> uh, but... Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's a huge week, obviously, in Brexit land and protocol land. The UK, as expected, published the the bill on the protocol, and it was a lot worse than a lot of people in Brussels feared. One diplomat I spoke to said he was absolutely stunned by the scope of this bill, uh, and it has really set relations uh, plummeting between Brussels and London and London and Dublin. Uh, so we've, we've a lot to get through. Yeah, so first of all, were there any surprises? And we, we know that it's been coming for a while. You went through, I think the last time we spoke, just how long this has been in the making. But when it emerged in its final form, did any of the provisions take people by surprise or was it pretty much as expected? Well, I think in the run-up to this, there, there was an expectation that the the UK government had two kind of options to choose from. One would be the hard option where the you would have a bill that would immediately disapply bits of the protocol once it became law. Then you had a slightly softer option whereby the bill would only give ministers powers to disapply bits of the protocol in the future. Um, now, as you mentioned, this bill has been in gestation since last September, October, um, and some of the reporting this week on the outsized influence of the European Research Group on the final drafting of the bill is an indication to me, at least, if you step back and look at the pattern going back over the last year and a half, last 16 months, it seems clear to me that after the EU vaccine episode at the end of January last year, there was a kind of a project led by David Frost, uh, the former Brexit negotiator, 
I think in cahoots, if you like, with the ERG to not just to have the protocol implemented in a less kind of zealous way, which was the initial complaint from the British government, but to have a new protocol altogether. From that date on, the hostility towards the, the protocol as is just grew and grew. And eventually it was being framed as a, a threat to the constitutional and territorial integrity of the UK. And the, what emerged on Monday is absolutely at the harder end of what people were expecting. Uh, I mean, one diplomat I spoke to said that this, this seemed to be, in his view and his experience as a diplomat, unprecedented in the sense of a Western country taking a hammer to an international treaty that it had negotiated and signed. Mm. So, I mean, basically, basically the, the, the bill gives, um, it, 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 it first of all removes from UK domestic law any legal effects or obligations or enforceability of, of key parts of the protocol, such as checks on goods entering Northern Ireland. So, We've talked about this before when the protocol was negotiated and it was converted into the EU Withdrawal Act in British law. That meant that the protocol was an obligation on the UK government and that obligation was enshrined in domestic law in the UK. That's been overturned by this bill. Um, the bill also gives British ministers wide powers to replace the requirements of the protocol with their own preferred systems. So that's where you have this dual regulatory regime coming in so so it, it expunges the protocol from domestic law and then it gives ministers the powers to replace the elements of the protocol with what they want themselves so this dual regulatory regime which of course northern ireland agri-food companies and and organizations have denounced and the eu has said would just be completely unworkable um now 15 out of the 26 clauses give ministers powers to make quote any provision the minister considers appropriate in connection with the protocol uh, to determine how it should operate. Clause 18 says a minister can, quote, engage in conduct in relation to any matter dealt with in the protocol if they consider it appropriate to do so. So you can see that these are incredibly broad powers that ministers would have in the future. Um, it shuts down the protocol, how the protocol operates in, in domestic law. And it gives ministers incredibly broad powers to bring in whatever they want. And, uh, and the overarching the justification for this is to protect the Good Friday Belfast Agreement. That's the that's the overarching that the protection of that supersedes what's in the protocol because it's a more important law or it enjoys primordial stature within the UK's unwritten constitution. Is that that, that that seems well, to be the driving legal argument behind it, is it? Well, there's there's a, I suppose there's a political argument and there's a legal a legal argument, and the UK has been making the political argument for for as long as we can remember that the the protocol as is does not have the correct balance. That one part of the community is alienated by it, so therefore it's a threat to the Good Friday Agreement. Now we talk. So that's before, the political argument. About, that's the political argument. Yeah, and. Um, and, and the, the legal justification for this, there was a, a reporting that Suella Braverman, the Attorney General, was using this concept of, the, of primordiality, this idea that the Good Friday Agreement is somehow primordial over the withdrawal agreement 
it, it, it somehow would take precedence. Now, that baffled legal scholars because there's no such concept in international law. But the concept that they have gone for is a thing called uh, necessity. And this is a this is a legal justification that is um, it's, a, it's a doctrine that has revolved, evolved through a thing called the draft articles on the responsibility of states for internationally wrongful acts. Um, so it's, it's basically if, an, if a state wants to break international law or to break a, a treaty obligation it has to a, a, a co-signatory of a treaty, then it can invoke this notion of necessity. Um, but the, 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 the problem is that the state has to show that it's the only way for that state to safeguard an essential interest against a grave and imminent peril. And it can only do it as well if it doesn't seriously impair the interests of the other party. Um, a state so, the, for example, like the, the presence of um, the Article 16 in the protocol means there is possibly another remedy which could be exhausted before exactly. international law is broken. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and the fact that the UK is a co-designer of this, in fact, what was... What was said during the week, I, th I think by Simon Coveney, was that this was proposed by Downing Street. So we, we know that Leo Varadkar and Boris Johnson met in the Wirral and they came out with this as, as a proposal. But th what was being said in Dublin during the week was this actually came from Downing Street as a proposal. So it's not so much co-design as actively designed by Downing Street, what we have, with plenty of civil service advice outlining the consequences before this was ever ratified and run through Parliament, albeit on a short time frame because of the political imperative to get Brexit done before an election. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever way you look at it, the, the, the necessity doctrine is not going down well in, in legal circles or among uh, legal experts, um, especially since a country can't use that doctrine if it, if it has contributed to the situation of necessity. Um, Jonathan Jones, who's the, the former chief legal officer of the UK government, who, of course, resigned over the internal market bill, he said that uh, he's writing in politics. So he said, like, how can an agreement willingly enter in willingly entered into only in 2020 at what the prime minister described as a fantastic moment? How can that already be proving so disastrous as to represent grave peril to the country? Now, obviously, the UK will argue that since unionism is so inflamed and you know alienated by the protocol, then it does put the peace process in jeopardy. And we've had street disturbances, of course, last year. And the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement aren't up and running because of this. So you can see what, where the UK is trying to go with this, saying that the, the stability that we have is is at risk and at peril because of the protocol. Um, but but the, I think there's you know, a slightly it's, it's more threadbare appearance to the argument of protecting the Good Friday Agreement after the events of this week, where the European Court of Human Rights uh, halted a flight of um, asylum seekers being flown to Rwanda, with which the uh, UK ha has an agreement and they're Downing Street not ruling out uh, withdrawing from the European Convention on Human Rights, which underpins the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, if the Good Friday Agreement was of paramount importance, then every strand of that agreement would surely be sacrosanct. But 
that doesn't appear to be the case in another wing of of the British government machinery. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the government is struggling to reconcile all these positions and is getting a lot of criticism uh, for that. Uh, I mean, there there is a requirement in the Good Friday Agreement that the European Convention on Human Rights applies in Northern Ireland. So if Britain were to withdraw from that, then it's hard to see how that requirement would continue. Um, so nonetheless, the, the bill is is published and the EU responded with uh, resu- by resuming legal action. Uh, and we, we now have a situation where the genie is out of the bottle. The bill is going to go through Parliament. Uh, the question is, can the House of Commons block it? W- would there be enough rebels in the House of Commons to block it? Uh, or could the House of Lords block it? And the signals I get is that is that no, this 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 probably won't be blocked um, by the Commons or the Lords. Ultimately, um, it, it 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 will only not happen if the UK government decide to get back to the negotiating table with the European Union um, and and find another way to deal with the the problems of the protocol. Okay. But you know, so, so far apart are both sides now. It's just it's just hard to see how that can happen. Okay. Well, let's hear from some of the the main protagonists. We can go first to London, and as as we said at the outset of this podcast, Boris Johnson saying that what they were proposing is not a big deal, and we'll also hear from Liz Truss on what she wants Ireland in particular to do on this. You've got a problem at the moment, which is that in uh, in Northern Ireland, the uh, Stormont Assembly, the government of Northern Ireland, uh, can't meet because of the effects of the protocol. What it does is it creates unnecessary barriers on, on trade east-west. Uh, what, we, what we can do is fix that. It's not a big deal. Uh, we can fix it in such a way as to remove those bureaucratic barriers, but without putting up barriers on trade moving north-south in the island of Ireland uh, as well. There is a very situ- serious situation in Northern Ireland. Uh, people can't access the goods they need to access. Uh, we're not able to implement the same tax benefits in Northern Ireland as we are for the people of Great Britain. So this is a very serious issue that we need to fix. We have sought a negotiated settlement for the last 18 months, but as yet, the EU have been unwilling to change the terms of the protocol. So I would strongly encourage the Irish TSOC to, prov- to, to discuss this with the EU to get a change in the mandate and then we can go to the negotiating table. So that was Liz Truss finishing that part saying that it was up to, as you heard, the, the Taoiseach now to go to Brussels to try and get the European Union to change the mandate of Mara Shevchevich in order to be able to renegotiate what's in the protocol. Well, let's hear first from the Taoiseach reacting to Boris Johnson saying it wasn't a big deal. The British government has a tendency to big up decisions like this and then once they announce them to try and trivialise them. Uh, essentially, announcing the unilateral um, um, breaching of, a, of, of an international agreement is pretty serious stuff and can't be, um, you know, um, just sort of <clears throat> put to one side. It's a very serious issue because it, it, it goes to the heart of the issue of trust. Uh, and the European Union needs to have a trusted partner to negotiate with. Uh, and so the next deal has to be one. Um, if there's to be further negotiations and a deal, people need to know that it will be adhered to. That's a very basic point um, that I think the British government needs to reflect on. This is a big deal, unfortunately. I wish it wasn't. I wish we weren't talking about Brexit continually. 
um, and I wish we weren't talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol any longer, but we are. Uh, when um, Europe, including the UK, needs to be working together in response to Russian aggression, uh, instead now we are forced, because of UK action, uh, to, to respond to uh, what we certainly see as a breach of international law. I don't think there's any other way to describe this. If you are legislating to set aside elements of, a, of an international treaty, which is international law, uh, well, then you're breaking international law. And that was Simon Coveney finishing that particular clip, the foreign minister saying that not only agreeing not only was it was it a big deal but it was also a big deal coming at a bad time uh, with war in Ukraine which I'll, I'll get into uh, you with in a moment Tony but let's go to Belfast as well Jeffrey Donaldson seemed pleased but only cautiously so because this hasn't come into law yet and won't for quite some time after that we'll hear from Michelle O'Neill the Sinn Féin deputy leader and leader in Northern Ireland so we will consider these proposals against our seven tests to determine if they meet what is required uh, to uh, achieve the objectives, which is, of course, to uh, restore Northern Ireland's place within the UK internal market, to remove the barriers to trade within the UK, and uh, to enable us then to restore the political institutions and to protect uh, the principle of consensus, cross-community consensus, which is at the heart of the Belfast Agreement and of how the political institutions operate. So we will engage and continue to engage with the government on these matters. We will put our case in Parliament. We will uh, seek to ensure that this bill goes through Parliament and delivers what is required to offer economic and political stability to Northern Ireland. I note that a number of MLAs have joined together to write to the Prime Minister today um, and I want to be clear that those parties do not represent unionism, they represent one side of this debate and that this institution in the Assembly can only be restored on the basis of a cross-community consensus. Majority rule will not cut it. That's what unionists were told over all the years. You cannot, in a divided society, operate on the basis of majority rule. So to the Alliance, the SDLP and Sinn Féin, who have written this letter, they need to recognise uh, that these institutions can only function with the consent and support of unionists. Not a single uh, Assembly member elected here at Stormont supports the protocol, and that issue needs to be dealt with. And in the absence of an agreement with the EU, then the UK government is right to act. And we look forward to giving full consideration to this legislation. Well, both Boris Johnson and Brandon Lewis are dishonest with the truth. They, they do not speak facts in terms of the reality here that the protocol is working. So it's incumbent upon us as political leaders, as political parties, with a mandate from the people here to actually call them out whenever what they're doing is wrong and what they're doing clearly today to breach international law, to undermine our political stability, to undermine our economic certainty, then it, that needs to be called out. So that's why it was important that the parties actually came together and that we did co-sign a letter that would go directly to him. And we want people to understand that we are speaking on behalf of the people here um, as the majority of parties are uh, for the protocol. Uh, we oppose Brexit, but we accept that the protocol is mitigation. 
Um, and I think also given the weekend that we've had a number of the business organisations out, we've had the Dairy Council out, the Food and Drink Association have all come out, manufacturing have all come out, very strongly to say, in fact, the protocol is working. And what Boris Johnson is doing today is to undermine all of that. So, Tony, that's a roundup of the voices there. I suppose we, we kind of discussed what Boris Johnson had said in the beginning. We, we know it is uh, being treated as a big deal in Europe, but if we could just get into what Liz Truss was saying there the attempt to lean on Ireland to go to Brussels to get the EU to change Mara Shevchevich's mandate to renegotiate the protocol, that's just going to be a no, is it? Yeah, I mean, there's no chance at all that the EU is going to do that. Uh, and this has been roundly dismissed by weeks for, for weeks by officials and, and diplomats in Brussels. Uh, I mean, the idea that that's the UK can force the EU to reopen the negotiation on the protocol is has gone down extremely badly. The, the view is that you know, the, the, both sides went round the houses on this for five years. This was a painstaking compromise that both sides worked on line by line for years. And it was the only way to, as they would see it, protect the Good Friday Agreement and avoid a hard border. Uh, and they're just not going to reopen it. Um, what they have said they will do is they can expand and put flesh on the proposals that they published last October that they say could form the basis of a pragmatic solution to the protocol, could deal with a lot of the problems around checks and controls on goods crossing the Irish Sea. That's customs formalities and uh, sanitary and phytosanitary or SPS checks. Uh, and what the Commission did this week, at the same time, it resumed legal action against the UK for alleged breaches of the protocol last year. It, it, it issued a number of position papers, kind of putting in more detail how these mitigations or flexibilities within the protocol could work. And there's actually some quite interesting stuff in there on uh, you know, trusted trader schemes, bringing more companies into a trusted trader scheme, having... Um, having a, an express lane that uh, companies using this trusted trader scheme could access. I mean, the sense being that if Britain wants a green lane for goods that are only going to stay in Northern Ireland, look, the EU has an express lane. It's just they're, they're not at the same point. But The difference is primarily with, with what, what data will. is provided to the European Union to back up the operation of this. Is that is well, that the point of yeah, difference I mean, between that, them? It's commercial data from well, the, U, the bit, UK is it, offering yeah, I mean, it's and a, it's customs it's data more, the EU wants. Yeah, it's a bit more complicated than that because now the UK is saying that the, the Green Lane idea would be part of this dual regulatory regime uh, whereby if you're trading only in, in the UK, including Northern Ireland, then... Uh, you declare that and then you automatically go into the green lane. If you are following EU standards because you want to send stuff into the single market over the border, then you go into the red lane because you're following EU standards. Now, the EU has said that that simply won't work. Um, the Food and Drink Organization and the Milk, the Dairy Council in Northern Ireland have said that would absolutely not work either because of the, the way supply chains are constructed with ingredients from here, there and everywhere. Um, so, so in one sense, the, this idea from the UK of a, of a dual regulatory system is a non-starter for the EU. But they're saying if you want to get back to the protocol as is and you talk about the screen, then yes, we can differentiate between goods that are clearly staying in Northern Ireland 
uh, from those that are that possibly are heading to the south. But the way you do that is you have to analyze what the risk is. You can't just say that we let all stuff in that is going to stay in Northern Ireland. How do you know it's going to stay in Northern Ireland? And that's where the question of data comes in. It's when the, it's the question of having some checks here and there so that you can establish what the risk is, being able to, to form a risk analysis. Um, but what the EU is saying is, look, you know, we can bring a lot more companies into this trusted trader scheme um, and we can radically reduce the degree of of customs data entries. They're saying like from from 80 down to uh, somewhere in the 20s. Um, at his news conference this week, Maros Shevchevich basically held up three pages and said, look, if you can, you can have a consignment of mixed goods on a lorry going to Sainsbury's in Northern Ireland, and you just need three pieces of paper. A very annoyed Mara Shevchevich, it has to be said, holding up, and it wasn't even three pieces of paper. It was it was two pieces of paper they had in an environmentally fa- friendly fashion printed on both sides of it. So he he, exactly. he he turned around one piece of paper. It was even more efficient than three pages. It was it was two yeah. leaves with three pages on it. Yeah, yeah. So 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 what what the Commission and the EU is trying to do now is trying to say okay. All of that stuff with the ERG and the European Court of Justice and expunging Britain as a whole from any vestige of EU law, all of that is a, an internal Tory party scrap. Um, we are listening to stakeholders and businesses in Northern Ireland. What they want is a reduction on the level of checks on, on this, on this, at the sea border when, when, when you're talking about goods. That's where we're going to keep the focus. And the commission is saying, look, we can ge- we can genuinely reduce um, the volume and complexity of those checks. Um, uh, and that and that's where the, the, the solution lies. Now, and from what baseline the do they mean that? Because, the, you know, the, the UK would argue, well, you're talking about, uh, you know, a reduction of checks from the full implementation of the protocol. We're looking at the existing situation where the grace yeah. periods are in operation and it won't be a reduction on that. It, in fact, it'll be an yeah. increase on the current scenario, even if it means a reduction from the notional idea of the full implementation of the checks envisaged in the original protocol. Yeah, no, that's a very good point, Colin, because that because that it, it, I think that reveals how both sides are starting at completely different positions. Um, as you say, the European Union says that the baseline for this discussion around these flexibilities is the protocol. The UK is saying, well, the baseline should be the, the pre-protocol situation where there were no checks at all uh, going across uh, the, the Irish Sea. Um, and, and this, you know, this is obviously a fundamental problem. So there are people in Dublin and in Brussels who think, well, look, when, when the dust settles and we have a year now for this bill to go through the House of Commons and then go to the Lords and then the ping pong, um, within that space, both sides could get back discreetly to this sphere of discussion around checks and controls on goods. And you could find a pathway there whereby everybody could 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 get off their high positions and restore Stormont and just be done with this thing. Um, the problem is that the, the UK government having put this into the House of Commons and having very publicly staked uh, their reputation on this being the only way for the DUP to go back to Stormont 
and the DUP themselves saying this bill becoming law is the only way they'll consider going back to Stormont's Stormont. It does put the UK stroke DUP position um, in in a bit of a corner that they, they will struggle to to come out of um, without losing uh, from the DUP point of view electoral support and for, for the UK right. uh, something else. I mean, but if you I, I if you talk to British officials, they say, look, when when this was agreed and the argument about you know that why the UK government needs to do what it's doing now is, well, the world has changed. There's a war in Ukraine. We have a cost of living crisis. We have, you know, circumstances, albeit if you talk to them, they politely decline to comment on the internal dynamics of the uh, of the Tory party's politics uh, as, as, as a catalyst in this. But on that point that, you know, the world has moved on and everything else, could the cost of living crisis end up providing a way out on this because on the one hand the EU is looking at trying to bring more types of companies and smaller companies into the fold in terms of the easements they're proposing and on the other hand the UK is about to engage in a round of consultations with businesses in Northern Ireland because they concede that there are people who are happy with the operation of the protocol or the potentially mitigated operation of the protocol and they have to engage with them in order to tease out what their proposal on uh, the dual system would do to particularly people like meat and dairy operators mm. uh, and, and and their levels of trade. So I suppose, yes. in other words, what I'm saying is the world will continue to change, but maybe the cost of living crisis will become a more driving imperative that will br- bring about a mood for compromise as we get further and further into the inflation crisis and possibly even a recession. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think in general... The, for the UK to come back to the EU's October proposals w- will be politically very difficult um, in, in the short to medium term. So, so that means that, the, in a sense, the European Union is going to bide its time, um, continue its kind of reassuring outreach, if you like, uh, to stakeholders in Northern Ireland, and somehow let the Conservative Party fixations and and divisions on the protocol play themselves out. Now, that could mean uh, a leadership challenge. It it could mean the Treasury saying, look, we simply cannot afford a trade war with the European Union once this bill becomes law. And it certainly seems to me that if the bill does become law, then the EU has a range of measures in reserve that the Commission worked on these over the past couple of years during uh, or after other flashpoints with the UK. And we could be talking about tariffs against sensitive sectors. We could be talking about the partial or whole suspension of the trade and cooperation agreement. We're obviously not there yet, but but I mean, officials have certainly been letting people know, letting journalists know that those plans by the commission are in a in a vault somewhere, to, ready to be dusted down. And member states have supported those plans. Um, so you know, we, we are in a position where that could happen. But I think the commission's view is, let's wait for this situation in the Conservative Party to to somehow resolve itself, um, keep the offer of negotiating around mitigations and flexibilities within the protocol, keep that offer alive, um, and then see how things develop. Uh, But again, 
you wouldn't bet your your farm on on all of this having a, a benign outcome. So, Tony, looking ahead to the coming week, is this going to be on the agenda anywhere, or will European minds be be elsewhere? I know the House of Commons. I think on Tuesday, the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss is going to be answering questions. This may well be on the agenda there, but anything else coming up on your radar? Well, just on the House of Commons, the the question is, will, will this bill get a second reading next week? And there, there's been some reporting that Downing Street now, having put itself out on a limb with this bill, now wants the DUP to give written assurances that it will go back into Stormont if this bill becomes law. Um, and Best there's even some that. talk that they would... They would, they would exactly that they would hold up the um, the second reading of the bill until the the DUP shows willing um, on getting back to Stormont. Um, I mean, basically, the DUP doesn't trust Boris Johnson. Uh, That's a so bit of an empty them. threat, though, isn't it? Boris Johnson has a sizable constituency within his own party that sees this want to be this that wants this to be put into law. They will be putting mm. pressure on at a time where, given the events as we record this on Thursday today, with um, Lord Guyte retiring his ethics chief, the second one in two years, and ratcheting up the pressure on Boris Johnson. He needs every ally he can get turning around and alienating the ERG in an effort to pressure the DUP to enter institutions in Northern Ireland, which, let's face it, are not the primary concern in London. Mm. Is is that likely? Is that likely to be treated credibly by the DUP as a as a, as, a, as a threat? Um, well, I, I it, it's it's not clear to me from from sitting here in Wuppertal, uh, Germany, <laughs> but uh, the mind <laughs> your insight into the minds of the DUP as you sit there is not clear. <laughs> but, okay, but, but but I mean, you know, clearly there is a history of DUP resentment and uh, sentiments of breach of trust and, and uh, betrayal by Boris Johnson. Um, and of course, you know, Je- Jeffrey Donaldson, the DUP leader, will will have to stick to the line that the DUP will only go back to Stormont if the protocol is dealt with once and for all to his satisfaction. And the pathway for that for him is, is the bill and the bill being published, uh, sorry, the bill being uh, turned into law, uh, you know, untampered with as possible. So that kind of locks Boris Johnson into a fairly hardline position on the bill. And yet the e- the EU is saying, look, if you want to avoid, avoid a trade war, come back to the negotiating table and we'll find uh, as many flexibilities as we possibly can to make this work for ordinary people and businesses in Northern Ireland. So it, it's, it's I, th- I think we are going to be in a in a period of, eyeballing and standoffs for some time. Um, nice. In Brussels next week, the General Affairs Council is going to discuss this. So Maro Shevchevich will be uh, briefing European Affairs Ministers on Tuesday in Luxembourg about where things are at with the UK bill. But all the attention here next week is really going to be on Ukraine. There's going to be a summit of EU leaders in Brussels on Thursday and Friday. And the big issue there is whether Ukraine gets candidacy status for accession talks to the EU um, that's a massive political story for Europe, so I think they'd rather be not be discussing sausages crossing the Irish Sea. No. All right. Thanks very much, Tony. We leave it there. That's it from me, Colm O'Munga, and RT's deputy foreign editor. At home in Kildare this week. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Wuppertal, Germany. Thanks for listening. <laughs>